Hi, and welcome back to part two of our journey through Hanukkah. In part one, if you haven't seen it yet uh, or heard it yet, you can feel free to listen to part one. Um, we discovered that Hanukkah itself, in the eyes of Chazal, the ancient rabbis from 2,000 years ago, um, they began to see that Hanukkah, the light of Hanukkah and the struggle against darkness touches a primal internal struggle. Now, there's a lot to explore and unpack in all of that. Right? The, day of, the first day of creation went through four phases of darkness, and they mirror personal struggles and journeys we go through, and also the meta picture of all of history. And the third phase of darkness, called Choshech, actual darkness itself, they align with Greece. Now that seems surprising, because Greece seems to be such an enlightened civilization from which we owe to the Greeks so much of our contemporary knowledge of the world and our ability to do science and, and discover everything from medicine to smartphones ultimately goes back to the type of thinking the Greeks gave us. And in fact, it's not just our modern secular thinking that makes us think that way. The rabbis themselves teach us the same thing. The Gemara and Megillah, the Talmud, when it discusses translating the Torah, tells us you can only translate it into Hebrew, right? Why? Because other languages like English can never capture, they can't be a true vessel to receive the Torah because Torah is infinite depth. It's the will of God. And that infinite depth there's so little of it can, can be conveyed in translation, right? And just on a simple level, you say that like the word malach in Hebrew and translate it in English as angel. And you come up with the wrong picture. You'll come up with centuries of a culture's way of thinking about something. You'll end up with a baby flapping around with wings or something like that, right? And that just can't capture what malach means, which is some kind of intermediary transmission device between the infinite will of God and us on earth. You know, and I'm not going to get into what that exactly is, but it's certainly not a baby flapping around with wings. Um, and that's just one tiny little example, but there's no way for languages to capture the depth of what Torah is trying to convey, except, says the Talmud, Greek, ancient Greek, which means the Talmud perceived in the language of the Greeks, meaning in the culture and the civilization of Greeks, because that's what the language expresses, maybe not enough to capture all the depth of Torah, but enough accurate capturing of Torah that you could literally convey enough of its wisdom that it's permitted to write. Now, of course, Jews at that point had written Torah in Greek, but they'd also spoken lots of other languages like Aramaic, and the Talmud doesn't say that's okay. There's something unique to the Greeks. And you see this again and again, both in, in Talmudic, but also in the Zohar, in the, in the Kabbalistic works, that also speak about the Greeks being this, this layer that is very, very close to where, where the core is. Right? There's something about uh, Greek language. And you see, in fact, the Talmud says it goes all the way back to, to the very first sort of Noah himself, Noah, who survives the flood and then apportions to his children a vision of how they're going to be in the world, and says, Yafta Lekim Liefes, his child Yefes, who becomes the originator, ancestor of Greek civilization. God brings beauty there, as long as he dwells in the tents of the Semitic peoples who are going to eventually spawn Israel and that type of relationship with God. In other words, the Greeks are not meant to be shunned. There's a real place for the wisdom of Greece. It really is meant to be there. It's just got to lie within the context, the contextual tense of the world vision that's going to be brought out through Israel and, and Torah. So there's meant to be a relationship. It's just when it, it inverts in Hanukkah, it seems that therefore it's strange that we call the inversion of that darkness. And obviously I've already laid the hint of where that's going to lie. But there's something very close tying Greece and Israel together, something very close tying Greek wisdom and, as, as, and, the, and the wisdom of the Jewish people, the Torah, together. And that closeness is going to actually become the problem of the Hanukkah story, but it's still interesting that we call that darkness. And we're going to need to explore how that darkness manifested itself and how it linked to the time writing on the horn of an ox. We have no portion of the God of Israel. But before we go anywhere near there, what we clearly want to notice, what we clearly want to notice is this. Of all the different exiles we were in, 
The Greek exile is the most bizarre to even call it an exile. Because exile usually means you're not in your land. Like the Babylonian exile, we were in Babylon. In the Persian exile, we were outside the land of Israel under Persian rule. Right? In, later in the Roman and Western exile and in the Ishmaelite exile, we're out of Israel in their lands. The Greek exile is the only one where we're actually in the land of Israel. The Jews are in Israel. The Greek dominance is in Israel. We even have a temple. We even have our own base of our own temple for large parts of it. So how can we call that an exile? Yet the Medrash, for example, in Esther Rabbah, um, the ancient rabbinic writings will say this is actually one of the exiles. Or in the Bereshit Rabbah, different ways the ancient rabbis will say it's exile. Now, how is it exile? And it turns out, in fact, this is a very deep internal exile. So what happened when the Greeks spread across the world and then divided their empire is... Elites would typically Hellenize, and Israel was no different. The elites became very sucked into the culture, the civilization of Greece. And you see it in the Talmud, where lots of senior people's names are actually Greek. Even some of the great rabbis have Greek in their later Roman names. So lots of Greek in their later Roman words actually become the legal terms that get used in Talmud and so on. But the, the Greeks become so dominant in their thinking that the elites in Jerusalem Hellenize. A lot, lot of the upper class of the Kohen, of the priesthood, Hellenize and abandon some of the more traditional ways of being Jewish, which were preserved much more in the hinterland, in the, in the, amongst the peoples. And that even starts to seep into the court itself, where there's a rejection of the power of the court to innovate and, and to interpret the Torah and to and represent the people in the relationship with God. It starts to become, no, 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 we limit it only to things explicit in Torah and everything else we kind of do in a much more Greek way. And you start to get this battle between the Sadduceic sect that wants to kick out the, the ability of the, the people's representation of their, of their relationship with God and interpretation and legislation versus the more traditionalist, the Pharisaic, and all this kind of stuff that's going on at the time. But there's this ends up being kind of a Jewish, uh, almost civil war, right? That, that in fact, when that short story starts, a lot of it literally becomes a civil war with the Greek Syrian garrisons siding on the side of the elites to suppress the hinterland Jews. And this notion of civil war and internal dissolution, this kind of, this collapse, this is the Jew absorbs the wisdom of Greece, just misplaces it, becomes a big hint as to what the darkness will be. Although, as we'll go through other episodes, we'll discover other layers and levels to all of this. And the notion of civil war and internal fragmentation is something we see that begins inside the Torah itself. Because the very first family of the Jewish people, the very first family of Israel, of Yaakov, Jacob is the man who gets the name Israel, his own children fragment. And it's no coincidence that we read those stories around the time of Hanukkah. Right? So one of the important commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, on the book of Jewish law, it's about 500 years old, so one of the more recent commentaries called the Bear Hative, actually in, in uh, the laws of fast days, you can look it up yourself if you're interested, 580, um, uh, sub point number nine. He says there that, that it's not a coincidence. The way that the Torah is tracked around the year and the year itself align with one another. Now, just to understand that philosophically speaking, uh, the breakdown, the break up the Torah is very, very ancient. Right? There are actually two different traditions as how to break up the Torah. We use the one that was became dominant in the Babylonian world, which was into fifty-four segments, which maps the year. And there was another one that broke it down into even smaller segments that became a three-year cycle. And the, one of the reasons why this annual one seems to become so prevalent is because it does seem uncanny the way in which the themes map the year. In other words, the journey of the Torah and the journey of the Jewish year are the same journey. And what happens, then it cannot be a coincidence, is that all the episodes that surround Hanukkah, all those weekly portions, 
are focused on the first internal civil strife in the, in the Jewish people, literally in the first family of, of Israel. As the brothers sell Joseph, Joseph, they sell Yosef into slavery. And then eventually that, that gets kind of reconciled. And in fact, in the prophetic readings that we do around this time, we also focus on that. And, and sometimes they talk in the prophetic writings about when we reunify the family of Israel, right? Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13, right? That I take the bow of, of Yehuda, who represents the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery, right? And I fill it with an arrow of Ephraim, the son of Joseph, when I put them together, then I can awaken your children Zion, Zion, against the children of Greece who come to oppress us. So you see that already in the prophetic text is a sense that this schism in the family, at healing that schism, is the solution to the exile in, in, of Greece. So we're beginning to see something unbelievable about Hanukkah. Hanukkah is not just, oh, they oppressed us and so on. Hanukkah is an internal breakdown that mirrors the original internal breakdown all the way back in the Torah itself. And that's why you have Hasidic commentaries and, and Kabbalistic commentaries like the Megala Amukos, just what, which means to reveal the depths, where he says the whole uh, tragedy that we went through in the Greek oppression during the time of Hanukkah and, and its solution are literally rectifications, tikkunim, of the sale of Joseph in the Torah. Right? And you begin at somehow exploring the sale of Yosef in the Torah will give us clues. And we can begin to pick up on clues already, very simply, because remember, the Greeks are first described in the Torah as Yaftalikim Liefas, the beauty that will be given to the world that will come eventually through their civilization. And Joseph, Yosef is also described in terms of beauty, both in the explicit text of the Torah, where he's described as Yifeitoy, Yifei Mara, beautiful of form and, and appearance, which is usually a term reserved for f- feminine beauty. And only, the only male who gets that description in the Torah is Yosef. Right? And, the, and the rabbinic commentaries all the way through from ancient times on Yosef always focus on his beauty. The stories focus on his beauty. That uh, the, the way his, uh, his master chose him, say the rabbis, partly for his beauty and services his master wanted to put him to. The way his master's wife fell in love with his beauty. Even the blessing Jacob gives at the end of his life, the Benosian, the Benos, sure that, sorry, I'm going to say that again. The Benos, the daughters, the, blessing. yeah, even the blessing Jacob, his father gives him at the end of his life, refers to the daughters climbing walls to see his beauty. That was, that was what he went through in Egypt and it caused him so much pain and suffering. And yet somehow he manages to emerge through there, right? And the, in the, his test and his trial is literally as a 17-year-old boy abandoned, who's then being seduced into the, by the greatest seductress alive for his beauty and how he eventually manages to, to pull out of that temptation and ends up in prison as a result and all that. But it's all orienting around his beauty. By the way, a word that is always used in the context of Yosef, of Joseph, is chain, is his charm, right? There's some, he always finds chain, favor, and that's, of course, the root of the word Hanukkah, right? There's something very, very deep and beautiful about Yosef. And some of that beauty, which later gets shared with the Greeks, is something that seems to dominate his life. And in fact, that beauty and charm, we can see immediately how it could be so dangerous. And here I want to draw attention in all that I'm saying in all these talks. They come from many different sources, a lot of these ideas, by the way. But if you want to look up some yourself, you can see the Maharal of Prague, who's so central to revealing depth in rabbinic writings. There's an entire book on Hanukkah called The Ne'er Mitzvah. He focuses a little bit less on this, but other dimensions of it. The Bnei Sasha, a great Hasidic source, has a lot on Hanukkah. So do many others. I merited many years ago to, to hear lots of different beautiful talks. A rabbi, Michael Rabbi Moshe Stav, who, who revealed so much depth in this. I came across an English book called Patterns in Time, which talks about a lot of this. And just so much does. I just want, I don't remember exactly where every single line comes from. But in, in many of these sources, they point out and many others, the I'm sorry, giving lots of sources for you to do research and homework. I just want to say there's not my own ideas. But many of these sources point out, in, in fact, in many ancient rabbinic midrashim, this issue of Joseph. You see, the brothers already from in the ancient rabbis show us they were afraid of this. The Yosef was a man of, of, of charm, a man of beauty. How dangerous that can be. Charisma is incredibly dangerous because charisma gives people the power to manipulate. 
And if you've got the power to manipulate and control others, you're one tiny step away from idolatry. Because idolatry in the subconscious, idolatry is always the worship of a human form and a figure. But at its deep subconscious, it's a worship of the self. Deeply programmed into every single one of us. And for those who haven't seen the five levels of pleasure talk, I talk about it there, the, the series on that. Deeply programmed to every one of us is a desire to serve the oneness of God and God's vision and will of the world. But there's, an, there's a kind of counterfeit that says, no, no, no. If I've got this special role to play in the world, maybe I'm the fulcrum and center point of existence and reality. And the more that we can control the world around us, the more we're likely to believe that we're meant to be the center of reality. The more beautiful and charming we are, the more dangerous is that point where we think godliness should flow through us, which is one little step away from saying, I am God and God should be me subconsciously. And in fact, the rabbis say something remarkable, that when it came to the moment that they're about to sell him into slavery, they say, the dream master is coming. That word master doesn't need to be there. They could say that the dreamer is coming, referring to all his dreams, where he told them dreams that they're all going to bow down to him. And you can see the fear coming up. Oh my goodness, here's Mr. Charismatic having dreams about us all bowing to him like he's some kind of God. And they add the word Baal, which is a subconscious or almost prophetic level that the later gods the Jews will worship in the northern kingdom, which is led by Joseph's descendants, where he split, his descendants split the kingdom in half in the future and lead them to the Baal gods. It's already within him right now. And in fact, the kingdom itself splits. The rebel who splits the kingdom is a descendant of Yosef called, Joseph called Yeravam ben Nevot, Yeravam son of Nevot. And the first act he does is build two golden calves so they will not go to the temple. Somehow golden calves become the expression of the children of, of Yosef, of Joseph. This idolatry that Yosef, that Joseph himself has becomes idolatry. This, this, this charm and charisma and dreams of being the one everybody's bowing to are so incredibly dangerous. And the allure of his charm and, and his, all his charisma becomes something that we can all become attracted to and driven away from Torah and God's service into human service and driven away into splitting the kingdom in two. And in fact, those golden calves are echoes of the very first idolatry the Jewish people did as a nation in the desert 40 days after Sinai when they serve a golden calf. And not by coincidence, Yosef, Joseph is involved in that too. As the ancient Medrash Tanchuma says, they took a slate a slate that had been used to raise the bones of Joseph. Joseph had been buried in the Nile, not buried, but put into the Nile. And Moses, Moshe took this slate and they said, Ali Shora, rise up ox, because Joseph, Joseph is compared to the ox in the blessings he gets. And as that, his, co his coffin miraculously rises, the same slate was used by the people who said, we've lost Moses, we need an intermediary to get in touch with God, we need to feel godliness. They throw the slate into the fire, says the Medrash Tanchuma, and up comes the golden calf, Yosef, Joseph, the same energy that can bring up Yosef, Joseph, the same energy that can bring up a golden calf once in Sinai, twice when his descendants split the kingdom and the brothers felt within him huge danger, the same danger that will become Greece, this allure of this beautiful culture and civilization that can lead us all astray and lead us into little different subtle forms of self-worship, of pagan worship and so on. And it becomes actually in the time of the Greeks putting idols in the temple. And so this fear of what Yosef and Joseph can bring is actually a fear of what the Greeks will bring. And there's an amazing B'nai Yisrael, the Hasidic commentary, it says that actually the gematria, in Hebrew there's an idea that every letter is also a number. And the gematria is the numerical total of each word when you add the letters together. It's somehow two words have the same gematria, there's usually a common abstract link. And shockingly, the word Yosef has the gematria 156, which is the same as the Greek, uh, Syrian Greek oppressor, Antiochus, 
That's a crazy one, but it, what it means is, what they're saying is that this darkness, this confusion, this transforming a leader of the Jewish people into a self-worshipping, egotistical, controlling, manipulative force is something the brothers thought they saw in Joseph. They sold him to avoid what would become the force within the Jewish people that becomes attracted away from Torah and into the idolatrous civilizations and even the wisdom of Greece. Now that is unbelievable and that is shocking and that almost justifies the sale. But of course the sale was wrong. And that's what we're going to explore in the next. Why was it wrong? They seem to be picking up on something true. Within him is the power of idolatry. What is it that goes so wrong? What mistake do they make? Why do we need Yosef? Why, why wasn't it so simple just to try to get rid of him? Why did that fail? Why was it a disaster? What is it about Yosef and Joseph that we do need? And how then is, it, is our real solution to the darkness of Greece? But what I want to show that we've touched upon so far is this story of the Greek exile turns out to be touching something so deep inside us. It touches on something within us, within a Jewish nation, a schism, a fracture that can break us apart into civil strife and civil war, that we can even call it an exile when we can kind of exile ourselves whilst being in the land of Israel. And, and somehow the Greek exile is linked to that weakness that exists within us. But the solution is not to get rid of it. And I'll just leave you with this thought. The rabbis told us, we discovered it last week, the darkness of the Greek exile was right for yourselves on the horn of an ox. We have no portion of the God of Israel horn of an ox. Now we've heard that ox word used twice already, many more than twice. Yosef, Joseph is called the ox. The golden calf is an echo of that ox. The golden calf they served in the desert with a slate of Joseph and the golden calf that Joseph's descendants will split the northern kingdom with. And it's almost like the Greeks are saying, come on Jews, you have this within you, don't you? You can write this, you can etch it yourself, write it, make it a part of your identity to be the people who can go after self-worship and hear in the voice of beauty and charm your way of controlling the world. And all of a sudden, you become this force that can turn into darkness, this force that can turn away from the light that Israel's meant to shine in the, in the world. And, and, it, and yet, the answer is not just to get rid of it, but to learn how to take that energy and harness it. How that works, we're going to have to learn in, in future episodes, but it turns out that getting this right is the core of the Hanukkah story and such a big part of the story of Jewish history and the story of our own lives too.